Lady. Yeah, it's Electric Lady. Yes. Hi, uh, it's Jason. Hi. Jason Bonham. Okay. Um, let me take down your number. Well, normally I'd have my people dealing with this, but they're all at dinner and I'm just sitting in my hotel room totally depressed off my ass because this page plant thing just really is not working out. Those two are at each other's throats and <clears throat> my dad loved your studio and I just really feel like going down and laying down some tracks tonight. Like a lot of the shit that Hendrix did there is so intense that uh, I just wanted to call money's no object. I don't know. I've got to get into a studio tonight, though. Okay, what's your number? I'm up at the Waldorf. I'm in room 1730. My people are all down at dinner. I can't even... I don't have a fucking appetite right now. I just want to come down and lay down a few tracks. If you could get an engineer or something. All the rooms are booked tonight. I know, but this is Jason Bonham. You know who this is, don't you? No, sorry. <laughs> You're not familiar with the name Jason Bonham? No. My father is John Bonham of Led Zeppelin. Oh, okay. Alright. I know Led Zeppelin. Yeah. Okay. Oh. I, I should hope so. <laughs> Jeff, from All the right. very top, the top of the mountain, just give me what you got. Hey, hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to another episode of You Wouldn't Download a Podcast. Today you wouldn't we download a podcast. You wouldn't download a podcast. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Today we have all the way from... Nice. Ghana at the moment, uh, artist Jeff Jensen, who we uh, we played some of the uh, Just Far Laugh prank calls on a previous episode, and I cannot stop laughing at the uh, the Morris Day shit, man. Very fucking funny. Hmm. Yeah, that was actually my friend uh, Mark Henning. I think he was calling Coyote Ugly Bar, which doesn't even exist anymore. It's tragic, right? Um, Coyote Ugly, yeah, especially after the movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know where. Where do you guys go to um, ply strippers with uh, car bomb shots in the East Village these days? <laughs> that I think it doesn't open. Yeah, I, it's pretty much it's it's a drought right now. We really don't have any real options in terms of that. Hmm. It's kind of fucked up. Yeah. So if you're looking, if you're looking for bimbos in the East Village that are uh, really drunk and are wearing like uh, like uh, Von Dutch cowgirl hats. There's nowhere to find such women. Not anymore. Uh, Another I mean, casualty of oh, the God. pandemic. For sure. All those places have shut down. Yeah. <laughs> Such a shame. What was the, t- what was the tattoo yeah. TV show around, like, with, with Kat Von D that was, like, that entire vibe? Oh. Uh, 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 it was called Inked. Inked, yeah. Inked? Yeah. Okay. Oh, my God. That show's fucking hilarious. Well, I want to get a... I want to get a Kat Von D in, like, a Von Dutch hat tattoo on me by her. Mm. I think that would be pretty fucking sick. Yeah. Kind of meta. Are you guys are you guys old enough to remember the uh, cultural phenomenon of the suicide girl? Oh, absolutely, yeah. of course. <laughs> oh yeah, yes. Do they still exist? Are there new? I think, are there new girls jo- joining their ranks every 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 day? I, I <laughs> think so. Because the website is still up, hands down. I, I think they have to keep continuously replace them because you know the name and everything. <laughs> Like uh, it is I exactly like what happens. It, they're short. They're short careers, you know. 
I don't think well, I'm on yeah. the website right now. It's all Android screenshots. Oh shit. What? I don't know what happened. Yeah. What do you mean? Right. Well the women tend to I think I think the suicide rates among those girls got much higher uh when they when these women reached their like late forties and they're covered in all these horrible tattoos. And right. Their breasts are sagging and they're deemed generally unfuckable. Uh, I don't know. I see I see some of them on TikTok. They're pretty good, you know. Some of them on TikTok, they don't oh, really yeah, know how to yeah. use the app, yeah. but but they uh, they put on some some Marilyn Manson and dance around. Um, what the hell? Yeah, you're oh, okay. Jacob. You're right. It's all screen. It's all like random shit. This guy posted a Rage Against the Machine Freedom Bass cover video five hours ago on the Suicide this is on Girls website. This is on SuicideGirls.com. It's just. It looks like just like a forum. What? Interesting. Uh, okay. Well, um, anyway. I've been traveling throughout Africa for the I've been traveling throughout Africa for the last six months and um I um uh, brace yourselves boys, but uh there I haven't seen a single suicide girl over here. Really? Yet to reach oh. African shores. Yeah. Wow. Um, Take That's it easy. weird. <laughs> I mean, I don't mean to. I don't want you guys to commit suicide by having heard this news. Uh, well, you you just assume it's a global yeah. phenomenon uh, that's definitely not locked in the, uh, you know, the 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 recesses of uh, 2011, 2012. You know, you, you you just get the impression that it's just every, every girl could be a suicide girl. Is there a, is there an emo night Ghana yet, Jeff? <laughs> Do you have like an emo night like once a month over there? Um, no, I, there isn't uh, anything like that. But I lived in Kingston, Jamaica for seven years, and there was a fledgling goth scene there at my uh, shock youth was here. Oh. Um, so I don't know if that counts. I think Jamaica is an honorary African country, even though it's on a, in a different hemisphere, but mm. culturally pretty darn similar so i don't know maybe i just haven't found this uh this burgeoning emo culture in accra uh, which is the capital where i live right now Mm -hmm. or maybe it's on you to start it yeah it's an open market like you found a something that could be is needed there you know Maybe, maybe, but that whole term emo is very uh, confusing to me. I, I have a band, uh, well, we've only played three times. Uh, we're called the Complete Faggots, and uh, one of the members of the band was in uh, a band called Rites of Spring, um, which are uh, allegedly credited with being the first emo band ever. Um, they are, yeah. We, uh we talked to Tim Kinsella about the Rites of Spring emo connection a couple weeks ago, and okay. um, I did not. I, I did find a bit of information about that project, like playing a show at Union Hall in twenty or Union Pool in twenty fifteen. Um, but I did not know that there was a member of Rites of Spring in it. That that was absent from yeah. the information I found. Yeah, well, we're um, a trio of. Michael Fellows, uh, who was in Rise of Spring, uh, and he was also in a lot of um, Drag City bands. Like he played with Royal Trucks and uh, Smog and Silver Jews and um, uh, like uh, Will Oldham's bands. Um, he, he's he's a guitarist, and then the drummer is a girl you might know from 
Uh, she was in a couple bands. One was called Awesome Color, and the other was called um, Call of the Wild. Her name's mm-hmm. Allison Bush. I don't know mm. if that rings any bells, but anyway, yeah, we um, and that uh, the name, the Complete Faggots, has, has now become uh, I I'm guessing a little unfashionable um, in uh, in post woke Brooklyn. So um, that's not why we haven't played. Uh, we're just we just live in completely different parts of the world. So uh, we, we we'll probably reconvene sometime again soon. But, yeah, uh, in researching yeah. like the bands, when I messaged you about coming on the podcast, you dropped some of the ungoogleable band projects that you've been involved in, <laughs> which helped me. I was able to find a couple things, but without that knowledge, yeah. it was it was difficult. But like, I found a project that you did called The Jewish, and there was like a video on Vimeo. And when I messaged you that I had found that, you said that like every performance you had like a different shtick. So it was like a different project kind of every time. So I only really got to see like one tiny moment. Yeah. We, um, I mean, I could give you some examples of some things we did like, um, well, I mean, we did, we did have, we did have one aesthetic that was a little bit consistent for a while where we were doing, um, it was like, uh, well, we called our, our brand of music Irritainment, and um, we were uh, we're just a, a duo. It, it was me and, and Doug Pressman, who's a.k.a. the record grouch. Uh, you might know his record store in Greenpoint. Anyway, mm-hmm. he, he and I uh, had this band, and we were... Um, do, you know the, do you know Joe Bryas, the gay yeah. uh, singer who was a... He was a um, He's sort of a protege of David Bowie, and he was being pushed as the next uh, David Bowie. Uh, he's American, though, and he was his whole career was a total flop. But his his music is really good. It's it's a uh, it's extremely uh, glammy, but also has this kind of uh, gay avant garde musical theater aspect to it. Mm-hmm. And so we were doing that, and 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 we and. Um, we decided that we would have one show where we would start the show doing that type of music. And then, and then we would have an audience plant, um, you know, start heckling us, <laughs> like drunkenly heckling us, aggressively heckling us. Mm-hmm. And then I would have a confrontation with the heckler. He would get on stage. He would, he would start beating me up. Um, where I had like I had these blood blood pellets in my mouth, yeah. so it really looked authentic. In fact, even even several of my friends like ran to get the security guards at this place and tried to jump on stage and pull us apart. And the kid was um, was screaming like uh, we, you know, he, his character was really moronic, and so he was saying like, "Play some fucking punk rock, yeah, you know, play something off the Repo Man." He said, "Play something off the Repo Man soundtrack." <laughs> and then after he was dragged, after he was dragged off the stage, you know, I was like, "Okay, fuck that guy." You know what? You, he wants to hear something off the Repo Man soundtrack. Like, let's do it. And Doug's like, "No, no, 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 Jeff. We don't want to give in. We don't want to let him win." I'm like, "No, no, no." Does anyone out there play drums? Like, let me get. And I'm like, Andy, come up here. And then uh, I said, Curtis, come up here. Take this bass. And I was like, All right, we're gonna for just for that fucking prick we're gonna play something off the repo man soundtrack and then we we had rehearsed the repo man soundtrack for like a month 
before <laughs> the show. So we had it like dialed in like completely. So we just broke right into the first and we played it, you know, track by track chronologically. The whole thing. And, That's um, fucking hilarious. Dude, we played amazing. the whole thing. Yeah. 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 So that, was like, that would be that would be something we did. We did a uh rock opera about Operation Desert Shield once. Um, <laughs> wow. And uh, um, God, what else did we do? I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it was just always something new that we wanted to. I mean, that was like for me, I um, I, I had this, uh, I don't know, uh, fear or just great, great distaste for um, careerism to the extent that I just, I didn't ever want to, uh, I always felt like such a sellout poser, even just doing the slightest thing that might have, uh, enabled a career for myself. So I was always attempting to undermine any, any chance that, uh, something could go right for me. Um, but it didn't stop me from constantly doing things. And at various points when I lived in New York City, I did have uh, some notoriety, you know, to the extent that, you know, people would come to see my projects when they would hear about them. Um, and so, yeah, that's pretty much, and, and, and most of what I did was uh, was done before the internet came to town. So uh, it does, it's not completely shocking that I'm largely ungoogleable. But there's some shit out there. I mean, definitely the, the, the prank telephone calls and a couple of the Rick Alverson movies I was in, which are a very small part of what I did, what I've done. But those are, it's much, it's have a much wider, uh, you know, uh, whatever. Uh, yeah, exposure. searchability. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, I was going to say, even searching, it's like I was able to find like some Brooklyn vegan articles about you, like, like performing or emceeing, like, bigger indie shows like in Williamsburg, like you performing or announcing times new Viking and shit like that. Um, I don't know. Oh, well that that was pavement. Um, Oh, and pavement. Yeah. Yeah. uh, yeah, They, um, well, I, well, when I got, uh, linked with Matador, um, I did some emceeing stuff. They had a 21st, uh, anniversary in Las Vegas, and so mm-hmm. I um, I was asked to MC one of the three nights. So I introduced Sonic Youth and um, you know uh, Pavement and like uh, I can't remember who uh, like uh, Chavez. I don't know, but I was yeah. <laughs> see, I, and I also did like a different character for each one of those introductions, and like mm-hmm. it, they were really particularly uh, profane and irreverent. And <laughs> I really uh, inspired the ire of the entire uh, audience. Like the, the, the whole crowd hated me. Like that was a pretty, uh, it was a pretty confrontational night. That one. <laughs> were the band, did the bands, <laughs> were the bands in on it? <laughs> or were they surprised? Um, well, they, I had to, um, I had to write an email to uh, Sonic Youth before I um, did this, like telling them um, about some of the humor I was going to be doing. And I, and I was just like, look, you know, in the tradition of uh, 
insult comics uh, like Don Rickles uh, in Las Vegas, I find it only appropriate, you know, and not to mention Friars Club Roast. Like, uh, I'll be bringing a similar brand of humor, although a far more demented uh, version of that to the stage. Uh, you guys have a problem with it? And, like, I think I gave him a couple samples because there was a Matador band called Cold Cave, and I was making uh, uh, an analogy to that band Cold Cave and uh, Kim Gordon's Vagina. I remember that was uh, one, of, one of my bits. <laughs> I warned them about that. I don't think I ended up using that joke. So. But they went for it, and they were very, very complimentary. They were cool. They, they, um, no, I, uh, I, uh, I hung out with them and I, and I knew, I knew a lot of the guys in various bands. That's why I didn't, but Sonic Youth was actually the only band I didn't know. Uh, although I also introduced Guitar Wolf, but I was like, Hey, these guys speak Japanese. They don't know what the fuck I'm talking about anyway. Yeah. Seems like Sonic Youth would, would be into that style of introduction based on their personalities, I would hope. Um, yeah, with some I, knowledge. I, don't know, I, was warned, I was warned that they're actually more sensitive uh, about that type of stuff than you might imagine. Huh. Because they were kind of the, um, they were kind of the punching bag for a lot of um, snarky, uh, mean-spirited, uh, scene-slagging smartasses um, sure. back in the 90s. There was a, uh, there was a, great magazine from Detroit called Motor Booty. It was continuously like, just, I, I don't know, like, like specifically making fun of Sonic Youth. Like, <laughs> and, and in very, very like below the belt kind of way. Oh, oh, um, yeah. I remember, uh, I, I remember in a review of one of their, uh, one of their uh, records, the writer said, "Like, could someone please get Lee Ronaldo some spackle for his face?" Oh, uh, Jesus! Oh my God! That, that was a little bit. Come on, that was a little bit unfair. That's fucked up. But yeah, yeah it's so, totally not chill. <laughs> that's like that's like yeah. beyond. Like that's like just personally very mean. Yeah, oh, it's also not a, a good suggestion. I don't think anyone should be putting spackle on their face. Exactly, it's bad advice. Yeah. At the end of the day, it's just like a, it's a terrible. I mean, any dermatologist will <laughs> confirm that. By the way, yeah, it's no, take it does not work. A lot of Neutrogena to clear that shit up. I think. I hope. I hope Lee would be uh, smart enough to not take that advice uh, literally. <laughs> I, I, I hope. I yeah, hope God, I wish I would have asked him that night. I didn't. I never. <laughs> I, I didn't think of that. I, I was too drunk, honestly. Right. But uh, I, I mean, this is a great thing about these days. Everyone's everyone's very uh, accessible. I could write. I mean, I'll write him. Oh, after the um, <laughs> sure, yeah. After the, the after interview, the pod, I'm gonna yeah. write him. Send him an Instagram pod. message. I just say like, hey, I don't know if you're aware, but there was a review in Motor Booty <laughs> around 1994. I think it was for Jet Set Trash and No Jet Set. Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. But if they, if they, you know, if you remember, they suggested you should get spackle for your face, and I'm just wondering, did you? And if not, don't. <laughs> I'm a concerned fan. I wanted to make sure that you didn't do that. Yeah, I saw him like recording artist. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I saw him like a year ago play in the cemetery uh, in like Park Slope, like Greenwood. 
Uh, oh, that's a beautiful oh, cemetery, yeah. Yeah, he, sure. it was sick. He had, like, a crane, and he, like, dangled the guitar and was, like, swinging it around and then, like, banging it on the tombstones and shit. It was one of those, like, uh, free film in Brooklyn with, like, an artist, and the documentary was about, like, like the the desert concerts they used to do in California mm. um, in, oh, like, yeah, the yeah, 80s. Yeah. So it was sick. The movie was sick. I got like a free yeah, ticket. Yeah, a documentary about that. Yeah, it was good. And uh, mm-hmm. seeing him there, it's like, if I would have known about that article, I would have for sure brought it up, you know? <laughs> I, I think uh, I think Basquiat is buried. In, uh, oh, movie. yeah, he is. You, uh, you're going to need to start looking uh, on eBay, Jeff, for some, <laughs> uh, some motor booty we'll see. I'll f- copies. We'll find it. We'll track it down. Do a dig. Oh yeah, you gotta get the you gotta get motor booty guys. That's a, uh, if you're not familiar, get the one uh, where they um, they write this really lengthy article about the Stooges Wax Museum in Ann Arbor, and it's it's totally made up and fake. Um, <laughs> but it's Stooges so Wax authentically, Museum. Yeah, but it's so authentically um, described, and even they have photographs of it. You know, of these mannequins that look like the band. <laughs> And, oh, yeah. um, and so, you know, like uh, Japanese and fucking European uh, stooges fetishists actually like made pilgrimages to go on existent wax museum on the regular would come into the local record stores in Detroit. Like we've been trying to find this wax museum and, you know, I um, cannot find this. It does not exist. Where is this? We come all the way from Lyon, and we're big Stooges, but the Stooges kick ass, you know, so, <laughs> you know, wow, this is, uh, very- The real prank was getting people to go to Ann Arbor. That was the real joke. The real punchline oh, is they're forced to go to Ann Arbor. Yeah. Is Ann Arbor that bad? Is it that bad? Oh, well, I don't know. I've don't never know. been there. I, I was, I've only been there once. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's yeah. actually that bad. I was in another band that actually was... Quasi-legitimate. Um, when I moved to New York, um, I really wanted to be in a band, um, and I joined the first band that would have me, and um, they were on Homestead Records, which was, um, to me, uh, very uh, impressive at the time. Um, but this was during like a, a lull in uh, Homestead's uh, kind of uh, credibility, and... Um, yeah, the ba- the band was called Smack Dab. It's funny. Um, uh, they're they're relatively ungoogleable too. But I I wasn't really a very um, I didn't I wasn't an architect of their sound. I was just their bass player or whatever. But we went on some tours in the early '90s, and I remember we played in Ann Arbor with Palace Brothers, right when they were very popular in the like 1994 or something like that. That was my only trip to Ann Arbor. Yeah, I was going to say, in, like, looking at, like, who we had, like, mutual friends with on Instagram, like, not, he doesn't follow me back, but I saw, like, your friends with Will Oldham, and we, we had David Paho on, and it's, like, I'm fascinated mm-hmm. with that whole, like, Palace Brothers world of shit, too, so it's really sick that you, like, mm-hmm. played shows. I was curious about the connection. Uh, yeah, um... I'm not really close with David or uh, Will. We're uh, we're pals. Uh, um, uh, I think Will, if I'm not mistaken, Will might be the reason why I got um, 
I got cast in the film The Comedy um, because uh, Will had starred in an earlier film of Rick Alverson, the director's. Uh, the Mushrooms called, one, right? No, 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 no. It's called New Jerusalem. They were doing this thing and they were saying like, yeah, we're looking for um, aging hipsters who have alcohol problems. <laughs> and um, we're wondering if you, if you might want to be if you might want to be in a film, well, it's a documentary. Like, no, but you should get Jeff Jensen to play that role. Yeah. <laughs> no. Dude, I thought you were great. I thought you were great. I love, I loved you, you in entertainment. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, that was. Uh, I think we spoke on the phone, but that was a, um, a real honor for me to be in that film because uh, Greg Turkington has been a, um, a role model of mine um, in some respects, and also. A, a close friend I'm, uh, you know, proud to say, uh, mm-hmm. for, for a long time. And I, uh, yeah, like, uh, without, um, apology, some of the uh, work I've done has been, you know, directly inspired by uh, a lot of Greg's work. So, um, yeah, that was cool to be in that movie. Uh, the anti entertainment aspect of like music and the stand up comedy stuff is very like Neil Hamburger and like Andy Kaufman-esque even, you know, like planting someone in the audience to like cause a scene. It's just like people don't do it because you can't really get notoriety about it because you can't admit that it's fake. You know, it's just some genius shit that people don't really do because everyone's chasing being able to attach their name to shit. And when you stop caring about that, that's when the really funny shit starts happening, you know? Uh, maybe I don't know. I mean, I'm sure you could be uh, uh, an obscurist who's not funny at all, too. That's very <laughs> possible. Uh, so <laughs> doesn't necessarily always work. But um, yeah, and you know, I don't even know if I would consider anything I did ever anti-entertainment. You know, I mean, I always just, I mean, my. Uh, my standard for what I was always hoping to achieve, I really wanted to just create something that I thought would entertain myself. Like that I would want to see, I was like, well, what is something that I, you know, would entertain me. And so since I'm continuously looking for something that's genuinely, uh, shocking or different or surprising, or they can kind of, catch me off guard or something that I didn't necessarily uh, see coming, um, then that's always something I was pushing to do, you know? And, mm. um, yeah, I was also, I've also been really influenced by Guy Debord and Situationist International mm-hmm. and just the idea, uh, that like in a, in, in the realm of painting, like Mona Lisa sits in a museum and people go up and take pictures of it by the hundreds of thousands, millions every year. Right. But the, the painting has no function unless it's being uh, experienced by humans. Right. right. Because if all the humans, let's say we all die of COVID mm-hmm. and the painting remains uh, hung in the gallery, then it doesn't do anything. So it's the, it's the moment when an individual interacts with it. And so to me, that was always... That was always the uh, the inspiration too. Is that I just wanted to have the the moments, like the fleeting moments of these situations, be the art, um, 
you know, even though there are things that are permanent, like you can go listen to the prank phone calls and this will likely outlive me. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, that, that was, that wasn't even, we didn't even conceive of having prank telephone call records. We were making those phone calls to entertain ourselves and to create situations with strangers, uh, that were, uh, to, to be really, I don't even like to use the word art, but it basically is, uh, some form of of beauty, you know, to um, make a to to to, to contrive uh, a live scenario that's just so uh, rich in uh, like demented hilarity. Yeah. That uh, you know, it satisfies me, Andy, who was my partner at that time, and hopefully uh, enlivens the recipient of the call. Yeah. You know, that was kind of part oh, of it yeah. too. Cause we, um, we certainly didn't want to hurt people's feelings or like, uh, abuse anyone. You know, we wanted to, we wanted people to at the very least walk away from the experience going like, I just had a, they could share it with one of their friends or family. Yeah, or exactly. But then it was, it wasn't until some of our friends were hearing it. Our, our friends, our friends heard these tapes, and said like, you guys should do, you should put something out. You should make a record. And there was already a precedent for this. In fact, Greg Turkinson himself had a prank telephone call record. Uh-huh. So uh, we were like, okay, well, we'll do that. And then we uh, self-released it. And then it was, it kind of had this underground notoriety. Then uh, Matador approached us and that's when we did the, the more larger thing. I don't know if you guys have the physical copy of those prank phone calls, but the, but it comes with a, like a 65 page book hmm. of writing that Andy and I did, which are really extremely lengthy liner notes uh, <laughs> about the calls. That's awesome. Um, so I'm, I'm almost more proud, more proud of that book than the calls themselves. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm trying yeah. to get my hands on, I saw there's like an LP version that has like different tracks or something. I'm trying to like track down a copy yeah. on Discogs. So in relating to like creating stuff in the moment, you also told me that you did a slew of things that you can't find from the 90s, like talent shows, marching bands, puppet shows, like scavenger hunts. And I could find like some write-ups about you having done those things, but it doesn't really say what you did or what anything was. Like, what were these like projects like for you? Um... Well, that's a hard question to answer because they were all so unique and there were, and they were all kind of complex in and of themselves. But like, for example, um, we were, I say we, uh, me and some of my friends were really, uh, uh, what should I say? Great fans of this 1980 comedy called, uh, Midnight Madness. I don't know if you guys mm-hmm. have ever seen it. But uh, it's actually uh, Michael J. Fox's first movie, mm-hmm. um, who also done it, David Naughton. It's a, it's a PG light fair, um, but it, it's about these five teams that uh, traverse Los Angeles in one night doing like an all-night scavenger hunt. And it's really a funny movie. It's a great time capsule of 1980 also. Mm. And it used to be a staple on HBO when I was a kid. So basically in an effort to just, again, do something that I would enjoy, you know, I'm like, well, like we assembled hundreds of people in like 30 different teams 
And we even, like, we did two of them. We did, Manha and we called it Manhattan Madness and Manhattan Madness 2. And we, the second one was far more elaborate. And we uh, had, like, a seminar. First of all, we put all this really deliberately confusing literature in various places in New York under the name of Game Tech, uh, this, like, like corporation that was creating this all-night, um, you know, competitive gaming experience and inviting people to come for a free seminar to learn about our game uh, experience. And so all, we got a lot of random people from across the city, but as well as a lot of my friends and like a network of people. And so we gave this like uh, this presentation, this all night like PowerPoint presentation about the game and how to get involved in it. And then so we had all of the teams assemble at the Astor Place Cube, and then they had to pay a small fee to join. And also the teams were in costumes. They were all supposed to have a theme. And then so we uh, gave them these lists of clues, which when solved would lead them to a particular place in the city. And then they would have to find a, a word somewhere like, um, for example, like it would lead you to a, uh, a cowboy at a bar and then you'd have to ask him a question and he would say a word. And once you got the word, you solved that clue. And there were like 30 clues. And when the team that solved the clues first called, we revealed where the finish line was. And then, so the first team to get to the finish line won and there was like some amazing prize. But then afterwards, all the, all the participants went to like the after party, which uh, had some really good bands playing. And it was actually at a place called Enid before Enid existed. It hadn't yet opened. Um, it, this would have been 1999, I guess. Um, so yeah, that's an example of something I did that me and um, a few of my friends masterminded. It was just really elaborate. I mean, that, that shit sounds crazy. Uh, it sounds really fun. Yeah, there was, a, and there was a documentary made about that uh, party. Um, it's, you know, it's it's not the, the greatest documentary or that watchable, but it's also kind of impossible to find. Uh, you know, I've had friends of friends put it up on Facebook and various social media sites, just so those of us that were involved in it could look at it. But um, yeah, uh, there was that. There was like, you know, we were putting up these, uh, putting on these talent shows, um, uh, just really honestly, because I was hoping it was partially to have kicks and have fun, but it was also like, I was genuinely wondering like who the fuck will come out to participate in a talent show, you know? And, um, cause I was hoping to get people outside of the like hipster indie rock ghetto and just find regular people uh and um also yeah to meet to meet the best minds in new york i you know the, the the way that i was making these posters and invitations i thought was really enticing and it was exactly like you know it was the aesthetic and had the um it just had the kind of uh vibe of something that i i would be uh uh entranced by so i thought well i'll meet 
theoretically meet some similarly minded people, which I did. And a lot of the people that did that are friends to this day. And a lot of the people were, you know, became, went on to be big, famous artists, you know, guys mm -hmm. that, you know, people that are now super famous that were uh, totally obscure then. So, um, yeah, that was really like, uh, it was a, a niche social scene that I was, you know, without sounding arrogant, I was kind of at the center of that for a few years in, um, and yeah, it was something that was just like totally ignored by the village voice or Time Out or the New York press, or, I mean, again, this is like pre-internet. So, um, those were the media, uh, uh, uh just kind of, uh, you yeah, know, uh, it, it had to be word of mouth, that, that, like that, totally that, underground. Yeah, it was, it was, it was really, it was really underground. Um, and so, um, yeah, I never thought to necessarily do anything to document it per se. I mean, I do have a lot of photographs of it and I, and I probably will write about it someday, you know. Yeah, but, you need a book, yeah, dude. You, um, need, you need a book for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if you were there, you were there. In relation to the prank calls, you mentioned like a, a story where you had like some behind the scenes, like attempting viral stunt paid for by American Apparel to call American <laughs> Apparels in conjunction with the oh, release yeah. of a shirt. Can we talk a little bit about yeah, that? Yeah, I should have. Well, I should have. Um, I should have linked you with that because all those recordings are, uh, are edited and they're available and they're all slick. The thing was, is that, um, much to my shock, American apparel contacted Matador records shortly after the release of the prank phone call and said, we would like to stock just for our laugh in our store, mm -hmm. uh, which I thought was a prank. I'm like, what the fuck? What is a, <laughs> uh, you know, are, are like, are 16 year old girls going to be fascinated by calls, uh, about Ed Asner? Like I, I, <laughs> I was not aware of that, but, um, you wouldn't expect it, but you know, maybe so. You wouldn't expect it. Yeah. Ed mm -hmm. Asner for a second in the, uh, early two thousands was considered very sexy. Um, <laughs> among teens. but, uh, I, I anyway, have his uh, they, uh, do you? That's cool. I do. Um, anyway, he, he, uh, no, I'm, now I'm, I'm talking, no, the, the, uh, yeah, American Apparel put our record in various stores. Uh, I, I'm dubious as to how many we sold, but it was, it was there. And then to make matters even more, uh, surreal, uh, someone said like, uh, well, they said, um, do you mind coming in and doing some promo spots so we can advertise your, your record? Cause we, we have our own radio station and we play, we pump our radio station into all of our stores. And so we'll be advertising your record while people are shopping in the stores and then theoretically they'll buy it. Like, okay, fine. So when I came in to do it, I did a couple phone calls and I called a couple American apparel stores. And then I got this, uh, email from one of the top guys at American Apparel, not Dove Charney himself, but some other dude. And it's just like, we're getting incredible response from this, these calls you made, like every, you know, we're hearing all these stories that when 
when the calls are played in the store, everyone starts really like losing their shit and losing their um, shit. Yeah. <laughs> so basically, uh, yeah. Uh, long story short, uh, they they came to me and said, like, do you want to do something with with this? Do you want to make uh, like we could do a collaboration? We could do a shirt. And that has a uh, like a download code that comes with the shirt to some of your <laughs> your work, and I was like, "Wait, you guys are gonna pay me to prank you?" And I was like, "Okay, you know." So we got started doing it, and we made a really good batch of calls. I'm very proud of them. They're very they're fucked up, man. They're really insane. Like we were, I was calling American Perils all over the world. <laughs> and with these really, uh, you know, very uh, conceptually complicated backstories, um, <laughs> often. Like, there's one where the, uh, the, I don't like to describe prank phone calls, they never really have the magic listening to them. But I'll say that there was a call with the, um, the bass player of Bob Seeger's Silver Bullet Band calling the Tijuana. American Apparel, um, claiming that he wants to get outfitted for a first date that he's having with a teenage girl. And, um, oh my God. Uh, hey, hey, the, the shop boy is like trying to help him. And then along the way, uh, gets, uh, incarcerated in a Mexican jail after getting too drunk at a cantina. And, um, it's, you know, it's, it gets, uh, really convoluted and, um, <laughs> yeah, it's a three part, uh, sweet. And they, and oh, did they, so they, so they <laughs> played that so one in call. an American apparel. Is that what yeah. you're saying? They played them? Well, well, no, um, no, not those because those are the calls that were going to be released with this shirt, but oh, okay. much is the story of my career. Like, you know. Like it never ended up happening. The uh, calls exist. The I see. Calls are I see. Done. I see. I see. Okay. But then, but Do then there was a there was a major sh- there was a major shakeup at American Apparel. Um, uh, like the whole company got taken over by somebody else, and then they're like, right. "Oh man, we don't have that whole division." Got like you know deleted uh, like right before this thing was supposed to happen and i was just like oh, okay whatever so, <laughs> but the calls are still there i mean i, I gotta hear them like yeah. that's amazing yeah. I, no you'll <laughs> like them i mean they're they're, they're funny they're fun i have to, I, without sounding too cocky i will no they sound hilarious they're uh they're good yeah. yeah, man. Uh, I, you also mentioned that you have like an unfinished documentary you were working on, which sounds based on title alone sounds fucking so interesting to me. Uh, can, can we, can you speak a little bit on Graceland um, too? Yes. Uh, that is, uh, really, again, I don't know. Well, one thing that I think the hallmark of my work is that it's always very complicated. <laughs> like it's, it, um, you know, it's, it's never easy to quickly explain, but, um, I'll start, uh, Graceland two was a museum in the home of a fanatical Elvis fan. And I don't just mean a fanatical, uh, the, the, the most fanatical Elvis fan in the history of the world. Um, and his son, Elvis Aaron Presley McLeod, his name was Paul <laughs> McLeod. The, the museum was located in their home. 
in Holly Springs, Mississippi, which was geographically positioned right between Memphis, where Elvis died, and Tupelo, Mississippi, where Elvis was born. And their, their museum was open 24 hours a day. And it was not only a tour of their memorabilia and all of their collection of Elvis stuff, which was impressive and vast, but they were trying to do something. And the, I should say the museum existed basically between like 1991 and when Paul died in 2000. Uh, fuck, what year did Paul die? 2014, I think. So um, during this time, they were, and they had been doing this before the museum opened, I should add, what I'm about to tell you. They were attempting to record all mentions of Elvis in all form of media. So by that, oh I mean, this is, this is really hard to grasp. They basically were trying to attempt to uh, document every mention of Elvis Presley in all forms of media before the internet existed. And then, oh my God. Uh, yeah. So that was, their house was this living, constantly building, constantly growing archive um, that was being operated 24 hours a day wow. alongside with this museum. And you could take the tour and it would be like a two and a half hour experience. <laughs> Paul, the uh, visionary uh, and main proprietor and father of Elvis uh, was very mysterious. Mm. Um, but he definitely had associations with the, Detroit mob and oh. <laughs> uh, he definitely was someone prone to violence uh, Elvis his son left him escaped from this very confusing and maybe even uh, hellish upbringing where he was he was uh, raised to be like a living manifestation of Paul's obsession with Elvis Presley mm. um, and also was indoctrinated into Paul's cult of archiving and giving tours. Wow. Although Elvis had a legitimate love for Elvis Presley and Elvis history as well. So it was a confusing predicament to say the least. And so Paul was then left alone and Paul just was slowly uh, degenerating into madness. Um, I mean, deeper madness. And his tours were becoming more and more unhinged. His uh, mental state was becoming more and more worrisome until one night Paul shot and killed someone in his house in Holly Springs. And then just because of the fact that, well, Paul also claimed to never sleep. You must understand. This is yet another fantastic uh, aspect. He was open 24 hours a day. For real. Like, you could drop in and, like, get to the door and take you on, like, a two and a half hour tour where you could not, you know, get a word in edgewise. Wow, man. Uh, about 24 cans of Coca-Cola every day. <laughs> so after he killed um, uh, an African-American guy in the house that was coming by to uh, demand some payment for some painting that he had done him when their uh, argument was uh, getting a little bit heat. Um, and then Paul um, 
Paul died within 36 hours, but it was basically like a heart attack. And so then now Graceland 2, all of the, uh, all of the stuff was auctioned and a fan bought the home and now keeps it open in some kind of very uh, light version of what it used to be when Paul and Elvis were manning it. And I was lucky enough to go to Graceland 2 when Elvis was still there. Elvis McLeod, I should uh, clarify. And um, so, yeah, I became just completely fascinated by their story. And um, not not being a documentarian, uh, I thought, hey, I could do this. How hard could it be? <laughs> and so I started working on the film in 2003. And I've done a tremendous amount of work. It basically... Uh, it. It devoured the lion's share of about five years of my life. Wow. Yeah. And I bet. Um, it's, no, it's, 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 uh, it's permanently shelved at the moment, but not permanently. It's uh, indefinitely shelved, mm. <laughs> uh, but it's still, uh, it still might see the light of day. I, I mean, that, that story, is, it seems too good to, to leave on the shelf. You know what I mean? Like the story is so yeah. fucking fascinating. Yeah. It's, it sounds like uh, like it could be like a current HBO like six episode mini like true crime series, right. but even like crazier. Right. Honestly, I, I think it it seems it seems to uh, have a lot of elements that would make it a good candidate for a series. Um, you know, and we've seen so many of these in recent years on Netflix, uh, etc. So yeah, and I mean, I've had people are interested i you know i know i know people it's just such a it's such a large scale thing yeah. to like dig into i had walked away from it and then i heard the news that paul had killed someone in his house <laughs> it was getting uh like new york times even was writing about it it was it was a because uh, paul I, don't, I mean if you do a cursory google search of paul unlike me paul is very present on the internet and you can read a lot of stuff information about him uh uh because he had i mean i used to know all these facts i've kind of uh forgotten them and moved on with my life but i at one point i could have told you how many people roughly had visited his house as tourists wow it's a remarkable number um yeah uh, um you know 100 over a hundred thousand probably oh my god um and a lot of a lot of famous people too, because I mean, people that, uh, I mean, clearly this is one of the most fascinating, uh, museums in human history. So if you were kind of hip, you would have found out about this. If you were coming through Memphis, you would have gone. So whatever, like, you know, Jim Jarmusch or Mm. back to Sonic Youth. We have to mention Sonic Youth every thirty minutes in this. Uh, it is a it, it is a prerequisite. I'm glad you're <laughs> adhering to our rule yeah. on this podcast that the we epi- always yeah, have to talk about Sonic Youth every episode. If, if you say Steve Shelley enough, like they get more listens, right? You know, <laughs> that's the well. That's Steve the rule. Shelley is mentioned. He's mentioned in one of the uh, phone calls too. But we're calling the blues musician, and I'm pretending to be a woman who wants to play bass for a blues band. And um, she's saying, like, we need to get a drummer. And she's a like, rocking uh, drummer, right? Like Steve <laughs> Shelley. He's like, I, I, I want to get someone who's like, to really get some asses shaking, you know, like, <laughs> like a real funky drummer, like, you know, like a Phil, Phil Collins or, uh, you know, Steve Shelley. <laughs> you know? 
uh, that, that one that kills me and then you call back as the ex-husband and you're like did she call you <laughs> yeah that's, dude so fucking funny yeah that's andy that's andy my uh my mm-hmm. partner uh-huh. uh, who uh who made that second call but when i but when uh we hung out with sonic youth to mention them again i don't want to uh they, uh thurston told me that they played that call while steve shelley was driving which when he heard his name in that context almost sent the van careening off the road because <laughs> he was so uh i don't know uh, shocked stunned Fucking it's very funny I, I honestly like at the end of, it's it's so like slipped into the end of the phone call too and it's like the payoff is very very worthwhile. Yeah. That's so good. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I mean that was one of the the elements of what Andy and I were doing was just trying to sneak as many you know inappropriate pop culture references into <laughs> the calls, you know. Yeah. It was fun. I mean, like I said, we were just trying to, we were, we were trying to be funnier than one another. It was really competitive. Yeah. Like Andy and I were, uh, the, the way those calls happened is that we, um, well, I was in yet another band. This is a band that could be, that we put out a record. We could find it, uh, called the special moments, uh, where we alleged to be these British brothers and, and it found its way, uh, into the record store where Andy worked and he was just, he was really into the record and um, uh, like, you know, it's funny. Not a lot of people know about the stuff that I do, but occasionally you'll find people that do know it and they're kind of uh, very obsessive about it. And, um, and Andy was like that and he found the record and then he just knew who I was and uh, what my deal was. And then when I came to Memphis passing through town, someone's like, Oh my God, you have to meet Andy. He's, he's really into you. He's really, I need to call him and let him know you're in town. And then, so Andy came and, um, brought me, uh, he had already made, uh, um, he had made a prank telephone call seven inch. And also he had, he had these, uh, he was doing this really good zine at the time called simmer on weekend. Uh, that's another one to find out there. It's, Cause it's very funny. And, um, yeah, it just was, evident and immediately that he and I had a very similar sense of humor. So I think that night we went back to his house and we were extremely drunk. That was another thing Andy and I had in common was binge drinking. And so we, we got, which by the way, I would say that, um, you know, alcohol gets kind of a bad rap, uh, when it comes to consciousness expansion. Um, but I think that, uh, Definitely, without the um, influence of alcohol, uh, that record would have never been made. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, it's, you know, it's it's an advertisement Wait, for uh, so, well, for booze, right. for, uh, sponsored by the alcohol where, industry, of course. Where did where did Bleachy come from? Because the big Buford shit is fucking insane. Like I quote it almost every day now. <laughs> well, you know, there's a lot of calls that you know, didn't make the cut, uh, you know, obviously. And so, and also a lot of times Andy and I wouldn't tell the other person what we're going to do. I just be like, Oh, I got an idea. 
Like we'd be like one upping one another. Like as soon as his call would be over, I'd be like, all right, give me the phone. Yeah. <laughs> that's the best creative dynamic. I mean, that's like Lennon McCartney yeah. shit, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, like I'm from Kansas city and um, like the, the history, a lot of the musical history there is, is uh, called uh, head cutting where uh, like, um, you know, Coleman Hawkins and Lester Young would do these, battles that would last 24 hours, you know, where they'd be trading solos. And so I, I, I think that it, it's, yeah, it's coming from that kind of, uh, that kind of tradition. Definitely. We were making the calls when we were drunk, but we were also making the calls the next day. Like when you're, if you drink a lot, the, um, the following morning, your brain is in such punchy, crazy uh place i don't know if you can relate with what i'm talking about i know what you're talking about no, i know what you're talking about yeah <laughs> that's where most of my memes come from <laughs> yeah i mean it's it's a very uh fertile um um mental state uh, i mean it's also hellish of course like the hangover state is, is gonna be quite you know brutal mm-hmm. but um anyway uh, that was where we were and so i just picked up the phone I just started riffing. It's like this, this man child, you know, this vertically challenged, uh, obese man child, cuddly, lovable, you know, man child. He's like, he's four ten and 250 pounds. Yeah. At least he was, you know, <laughs> then at that time he was, he's trying to join the army. I mean, yeah. So, so, um, yeah, it just, Kind of like it just poured out of me, man. I can't even really um, explain it more than that. That I just started riffing. I mean, him being upset about the big Bufords being too cheap at rallies where he can't resist eating four mm-hmm. of them at a time, <laughs> and how they don't give him napkins and he just gets ketchup and mayo all over yeah. his face. <laughs> it's just fucking. It's insane. And the lady's just like, nah, you're calling the wrong rallies. And you're just like, it's me, Bleachy. <laughs> you know me. It's fucking crazy, man. Like, yeah. the rally shit. Well, we were, I mean, I think another thing about those phone calls is that, you know, obviously when I attempt to make a movie, I can't finish it, right? I don't have, and I'm not connected in the industry. But what we were really, I think what we were doing when I think back to it is like, we wanted to make scenes, like we wanted to make really believable scenes, uh, like that would be in like the film of our fantasy dreams, you know, but since that would require far too much effort and money and organization and talents that we don't possess, we're like, well, we can just spontaneously create them in our own uh, you know, kind of uh, improvisational fucked up way right now. And, and, and they can be this own medium because I, I guess they're called prank phone calls. You know, they're, they're not, they're not really as much pranks, like as if I'm trying to trick someone or prank them or, you know, abuse them. They're more just like opportunities to create narratives and characters that are uh, that are small dramas that are uh, invented with without the knowledge of the recipient, you know, knowing that they're in these dramas, you know. That's also another thing with my work is like, I'm like, well, 
I did that. I don't need to keep doing that. I don't want to be called like the prank phone call guy. You know, like I don't want that to in any way define me. Uh, like that was just one thing I did. Uh, you know, so um, aside from the American Apparel stuff, I never went back. They're not really pranks. Like it's not. It's not mean spirited. Like some Longmont Potion Castle type shit would be. Like he's like trying to get them as angry as possible. And yours were just like seeing how yeah. many how many like pop references you could get away with without these people realizing it was a bit. Which you know it's like very like the the idea of building these characters for a while before like thinking of them before you even jump into it and then just like riffing as them in like a hungover state with like the idea in the back of your head. That's just like fucking improv magic creating scenes. Yeah. It was an opportunity for Andy and I to, to do some like social commentary as well in our own, uh, subtle way, you know? Um, like I love, I love the idea of, um, you know, this, obsessive like bible beating son having like this fucking party animal deadbeat dad you know who who calls you know who calls a minister to try to help him save their father you know and just kind of exposing a little bit of the hypocrisy of the suburban uh midwestern christian culture out like, you know, which I was exposed to. I'm, I'm from Kansas City originally, suburban Kansas City. So I was, you know, I don't know. I, was, I, I felt like a lot of the calls, um, there's a subtext where that's a little bit more profound than you might initially notice because the calls are so silly. But, um, you know, there's some there's some things going on where Andy and I are, I mean, without trying to sound like pretentious about this or something, but there, 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 it, it has that element in, in it as well, which I'm proud of that. And you know, that's something I'm glad lives on, but yeah, that was the phone calls. That was cool. I was going to say like, so we're, I feel like now we have like a good scope of stuff that you've done that is hard to find, but to tie it into like the now of like coming to a close, what, what have you been doing? Like, what's the most recent thing that you've been working on? Like, you know, whether it's like a project for like public consumption or like, where are you at now? You know, I know you're like traveling and doing shit. Like what's the most recent, like weird idea you've kind of like had ruminating or that you've started doing in any way. When I was doing, um, the films with Rick Alverson, uh, well, I had just finished the comedy and I used to run a food truck in, uh, Brooklyn that was really, uh, very, uh, time consuming, uh, business. And I sold the food truck and I had bought two houses in Williamsburg and I was renting one and then I no longer had a job. And I, by that point I lived in New York for 20 years and I was four years old. And I said, okay, I don't have a job. I don't have kids. I don't have a wife. I can rent my houses here and live off of the income from my rentals. Like I, I've been encouraged to go out to California cause I've been in a couple movies and maybe start doing, you know, 
I know Greg, I know Tim Heidecker, I know a lot of people out there that could have maybe helped me get my foot in the door to start doing some more legitimate acting and comedy work or writing, uh, which I'm interested in. But I, I decided, I was like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to move to Jamaica. <laughs> and so I moved to Kingston, Jamaica, and I, um, um, I really didn't do, I really haven't done anything that would be uh, categorizable as performing arts work. You know, I, I, I've, I've put all of my efforts into playing tennis, <laughs> into um, living a healthy life. And um, I really get back to the, um, the Debordian notion of uh, situationism as art. Yes. So for me, my, my thrills are like just my everyday human interactions where I try to inject a little bit of my own, um, let's say, uh, psychedelic and peculiar sense of humor into just um, dealing with immigration authorities or old ladies that are selling bananas or whatever. Um, and just really finding myself in uh, totally unthinkably surreal situations where I'm literally completely out of my depth uh, culturally in just really strange parts of the world. And um, yeah, like that's, that's my life. <laughs> just exploring uh, like pretty exotic and off the beaten path uh, parts of the world and um, trying to enjoy myself and be really healthy and meet as many people as I can, you know, yeah. and, um, developing a lot of, uh, you know, social contacts and playing tennis every day too. Like that's really my, um, my passion is, uh, is playing tennis. I'm not as good as I should be, but I, I, I play it better. There you go. But, but yeah, I know that might sound boring, but no, it's, it's your explanation is very, makes a lot of sense. And it sounds right. And it's uh it must be nice not to be in the chaos that is that has been the twenty twenty United States situation for a minute. <laughs> well, yeah, I um I've been lucky, uh, because you know, the um well like I said, in the last six months I've been in, in uh Africa and Kenya, Egypt and now Ghana. Um and the numbers are very low. So the um, the uh, protocols are not nearly as restrictive as New York um, or most parts of the United States. Um, so that's been great. And I mean, in the case of Egypt, particularly since tourism is basically halted, yet all the sites are still open, I was able to go to these incredible ancient sites pretty much all by myself. You know, so I was at like the the mm -hmm. Edfu Temple of Horus by myself. I was at Abu Simbel near northern Sudan like, with like three people. And normally there'd be throngs of tourists in a typical, you know, uh, a typical day. So, um, so you, that's been really being in Egypt, I'm curious if there's like a connection here because I feel like the last time I saw Greg in person was I, I went to see uh, Alan Bishop Alvarius B at Union Pool yeah. and Greg was there. No, no, just, I know Alan. 
Yeah, I was going to ask because yeah. he lives in Egypt. If yep. you know I, Alan, so I yeah, yeah I um, yeah I do know Alan, and Alan and I spent many nights together when I was in Cairo. Um, it's funny, I I, um, I I got to see Alan play uh, in November uh, here in Cairo, and um, I realized that I had not seen Alan play since one of the first punk rock shows I ever went to, he was in a band called JFA. JFA, yeah. They were, yeah, they were like a Phoenix skate punk band. Cause he was in Sun City Girls, obviously, but also Moonlighting and JFA. And I saw JFA, um, when I was, um, 13 years old in 1986 and Alan was playing bass for them. And then, I saw him in November of 2020, uh, 34 years later. <laughs> That's I, I, so I take 34. I only see him in 34 year intervals perform live. Right. I mean, I, I saw him twice, twice in New York since I've, I've lived in New York for seven years and I saw him like maybe two yeah. years apart at union pool. He did like two or three nights. And I feel like yeah. it's just like every time I, I go to one and I regret not going to both, he's just so fucking good and talking to him like outside. I was like smoking cigarettes with him and I had a feeling like his sense of humor and the way he talked that you guys might be friends or get along. Cause he's a very <laughs> funny fucking guy. Yeah, no, we're, um, we're, uh, cut from the same cloth and we can go head to head and keep up with each other in ways a lot of people can't. So yeah, there's a mutual between us and, uh, I really admire Alan tremendously. So it was great to hang out with him. I saw him like, you know, I saw him about five times I was in Cairo. And it's really cool. The, the scene that he's got cooking there is music scene in uh, Cairo is very uh, active and amazing. Yeah. I really liked everyone I met. I, the music that I saw outside of Allen, I really liked. The whole city, you know, Cairo is great. Everyone complains about New York, like, oh, God, it's so expensive, you know, blah, blah, blah. I mean, you, Cairo, man, like, you you can live there for nothing, you know, and if you're, and if you're smart and, uh, you know, you're, you have a hustle, you can make, you can live well there. So all yeah, you man. listeners, you should be, you should be moving to Cairo. This episode sponsored by the Cairo tourism industry, folks go to Cairo. Yeah. Egypt. Yeah. It's where it's at. Livecairo.com. <laughs> yeah. But I'd say the same thing about Nairobi and Accra too. But, uh, don't don't ruin these spots. They're, uh, they're they're nice to be. I'm the only person uh, that knows about the Sun City Girls here in Ghana, as far as I know. Right. If there are other Sun City Girls fans in Accra, please contact me. We can go out and uh, have a drink. We have a huge um, listener but, base in, yeah, in Ghana, so <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's only going to grow. Um, but yeah, uh, last thing, uh, yeah, that we didn't really touch on the, um, the, uh, the 45, um, the, uh, cookie boy blue 45, but, uh, yeah. Um, if, uh, if anyone's interested in those, uh, maybe, I don't even know if you could attach a, a track or something to this end of this thing. Um, yeah. I'll see what I can in, do in touch with me. Uh, yeah. Yeah. All right, man. Well, it's nice, nice to meet you, you uh, gentlemen. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for talking to us and bearing with us. Too. I think you're our farthest away guest we've ever had. So that 
is quite exciting. It's a great conversation. Yeah, man. Really appreciate it. And thanks. Thanks, everybody. And uh, if you want to find Jeff Jensen's stuff, you should definitely check out Just Far A Laugh. That shit is hilarious. And everything else that he told you about, try to Google that shit. <laughs> yeah, you can find uh, you can find the special moments songs of whimsy. That is a 12 inch record uh, that's uh, out there. Um, and yeah, the, the films, the comedy and uh, entertainment, they're, uh, they're there. There's little stuff. Um, but anyway, take care, guys. I'll yeah, talk man. to you soon. Thanks. Right, thank you so much. Peace. Peace. Buenos dias, senorita. Buenos dias. Does anyone there oh speak the English? Oh. Um, yeah, I do. Oh, thank God. <laughs> My name's Chris Campbell. Ring any bells? Okay. Do you know who I am? No, actually. <laughs> I played bass in the Silver Bullet Band for about 25 goddamn years. <laughs> Bob Seeger in the Silver Bullet Band? Um, no. Night moves. Like a rock. Uh-uh. Okay, okay. I don't know what you think about Bob Seger, senorita. Okay. But let me tell you something. Sorry? He can be a real bitch sometimes. Uh, Listen (laughs) to me. I'm coming up there to TJ. I need a little bit of help. Okay, please. This, all right. Hello? Hello. Yes. Ah, thank God someone that speaks English. My name is Chris Campbell. Does that ring any bells? Chris Campbell from where? Bob Seeger in the Silver Bullet Band. I played bass. You play bass where? Bob Seeger in the Silver Bullet Band for okay, about that's 25 like, okay. years. You know, you know the group, right? Yeah, I, I heard about it, yes. Yes, okay. I haven't been with the band since the It's a Mystery record came out in 95. Since then, uh-huh. I've been a bit of a hobo, you might say. <laughs> Last three years, I've been living down in El Coyote near Guadalupe. Uh-huh. I'm what they call a snowbird, comprende? Right. Right. Yeah, I'm trying to grow my own agave down there, trying to make my own tequila. Correct. If it worked for your fucking Sammy Hagar, you can bet your beans it'll work for Chris Campbell. Pardon my French. There you go. Okay. So here's my problem, senor. I got a date with an 18-year-old in La Jolla, and despite what they might tell you north of the border, you can teach an old dog new tricks. Trust me. Yeah. So here's my deal. I'm just a bit of a dusty old cowpoke down here. I'm looking like a roadie from the band Poco on a good day. Uh-huh. I've been living without plumbing for about 10 months, and I need to get my ass looking good. Can uh-huh. you help style me, amigo? Yeah, uh, are you in Tijuana right now, or what? I'm on Where? my way up there. Uh, my driver's going to bring me up there in two hours. His name's Punch. Don't okay. worry, he's cool. All right. So uh, I just basically need you to get me outfitted. Pesos is no problemo. Okay. Okay. Let me get your name again so I can, you can have it here. You can Google me if you got a computer. My name is Chris Campbell. Chris Campbell. Played bass for Bob Seger in the Silver Bullet Band for about 25 years. Seger, correct. I'm going to Google you right now, and I'm going to wait for you so we can get you what, whatever you need You can you take a that. look at me Thanks. and see what, see what you think, you know? Yeah. Um, hey, another thing is I want to buy some pot. 
do? Um, no? I guess maybe? In, here in downtown Tijuana, that's not going to be a problem, so I don't know. Okay. But Very I have no contact here, but I can ask. Okay, good. All right? But There's it, a taxi it, it driver be, in the It can be pitchweed. It doesn't have to be the good stuff. I don't mind. I don't. All right. Okay. I'll cool. wait for you here, mister. All right. Okay, I'll see Chris. you in TJ. Okay, I'm going to bring you some of my homemade tequila. What's your name? Jesus. Hey, Jesus. Jesus in Spanish. Jesus. Jesus. Right. All, All right. right. I understand. All right. Okay. I'll, I'll see you later then. Okay. Bye.